and welcome to Maths Talk by AMC Schools, where conversations in maths become part of your professional learning. Today, I'm pleased to welcome a podcast favourite, Cassandra Lowry, PhD candidate from the University of Newcastle, former AMC Schools advisor, a numeracy consultant, and a huge advocate for ensuring that every student in our maths classes has access to the wonder of mathematics. Welcome, Cass. Hi, Leanne. How are we? Uh, very good and all the better for seeing you. Reading your proposal for the presentation at, at the MAV conference later this month really fired me up and that's why I contacted you and said, let's do this. I'm really excited for you to share your thoughts with us. But before we get into it, I need to know what you've been doing because you've certainly added PhD candidate to your list of accomplishments since I last saw you. Yeah, so it's a bit of a whirlwind this year, actually. So after I finished up at EMC, I picked up a job as a numeracy mathematics leader at school in, in the west of Melbourne and yeah, was really enjoying being back in schools. So obviously, we got to experience the lockdown and the 265 days of remote learning. And it was, was very interesting, but it was a good experience to have as well because you got to see it from the other side. Anyway, after two years of doing that, I'm sort of thinking, oh, I'm not sure. Big push at my school for, you know, science of reading and stuff. And you could see that mathematics was sort of, you know, a bit of on the back burner and maybe I want to do something else. And I, I thought, you know what, maybe I do want to go back to study. You know, you start to get the itch, you know, maybe I want to do some study. And I thought, you know, I'm fortunately through working at AMC, we had a lot of relationships with other universities. So I thought I'll have a bit of a look online. And I was fortunate enough to work in the Hunter Valley when I was an outreach officer and I made some connections with some staff and I thought I got the idea late March. I, I'll just send a, uh, it's called an expression of interest to a potential PhD supervisor. I thought, oh, you know, I'll probably have to send a few of these on. Send it off on the Monday. She replied Tuesday morning. That's really exciting. Yeah. So it was pretty exciting. And then did a bit of email back and forth. And by the Friday, we'd set up a, a Zoom meeting and she said that she was interested. Was I interested? And we had a bit of back and forth at the school. Originally, I thought I might do my uh, PhD remotely and continue to work in Melbourne. And then we were just having a conversation one day. She said, oh, there's some jobs going at the University of Newcastle. Have you thought about coming on campus? And I thought, you know what? That's something I want to do. So I moved on here in July and, yeah, not looking back. So, yeah, it's been really interesting. It's a great little town, Newcastle. It's a beautiful university set in the middle of the bush sort of landscape with all the trees and the wildlife and the, you know, the sort of the little creek that runs through it. I live in Main Street in Newcastle and I'm walking distance from the, the beach. And it's just, yeah, it's a very different, it's a very different lifestyle. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a fun place to be. Sounds like you've really landed on your feet and that's really exciting. Why, why have you chosen to talk about the topic that you've chosen today. Ask and listen using formative assessment and questioning to improve student achievement. So I guess when I be went back to the school in Melbourne, I was part of a leadership program for teaching. We had a very good coaching program at the school and they trained the leaders up to sort of be coaches. So we did a lot of professional development. It's using the instructional model, Jim Nike, that kind of coaching model. And as part of that, we had to do a pre, like a reading and we got set this reading and it was from Harvard Business School. And one of the quotes in the reading was that good leaders ask and listen, not tell and sell, right? And I, I don't mind, I mean, you weren't with me. As a teacher, I'm very much into tell and sell. I guess maybe because we're, you know, we're mathematics educators, we're often trying to convince teachers and to students 
or mathematics is, you know, this important, valuable subject. So we spend a lot of time tell and sell. And here is this article talking about ask and listen. Good coaches and good leaders ask and listen. And it just sort of opened my mind to a different way of thinking. And I just started from that. I just started like, you know, get the researching again. And yeah, it stepped from that, this idea of, you know, a good coach is someone who listens, not just ask questions. You need to listen to the answer. That was sort of the inspiration for this presentation that this is something we can use, not just as a teacher, not just as a, a coach working with teachers, but also a teacher working with students and giving students the time to explain their strategies. Mathematics of today is very different from mathematics when we were at school. When we were at school, it was all about, you know, doing someone else's problem using someone else's strategy. I do, we do, you do. You know, now the model they're promoting now is this launch, explore, summarize model where we, we put the problem out there like a number talk or something, and we listen to what the students are saying. Like, what are the strategies the students are using? And then from that, supporting them. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a different approach. You mentioned in the summary of your presentation that teachers can find it difficult to make decisions about a diverse group of learners, and they can often just use the answers of one or two people. So what strategies or considerations should teachers keep in mind to meet the needs of all students, including those with varying levels of proficiency and engagement? Recently, I got the opportunity, I was at the Mansell Conference, so the Maths Association New South Wales Annual Conference, and we had the big stalwarts there doing the keynote. We had uh, Doug Clark and Di Seaman, and Di Seaman was talking about being in a project where, and I heard, I've heard this before, but there's a gap between your bottom 10% of your kids and your top 10% of seven years, seven years. So firstly, teachers need to get out of their head. And I'm, I'm fortunate now I, I'm, working, I'm working with pre-service teachers as well and while I'm doing my PhD is this idea that you're in a straight th grade three class, forget it. In your straight grade three class, you are going to have students working at, in New South Wales, we call it a kinder level or a prep level. Oh, and you're going to have kids working at a year six level. That's your straight grade three class. So you've got to you think about, well, how can I differentiate the learning? Now, you're going to have 25 kids in your grade. You cannot have 25 lesson plates. You, you can't. So you've got to think about how can I be teaching the students? and But how can I at the same time differentiate the needs? Because the needs can be seven years. And so that's that's a really, we almost need to, you know, throw out this idea of, you know, a straight grade, but that's where we're at. So we've got this, we've got this old industrial system where we've got straight grades and then we've got this new research that says the gap is so big. So how can we sort of push those two together? So too often in classrooms, and we've all done it, you ask a question, um, two kids put their name, their hand up, Leanne, what's the answer? Leanne knows the answer, bang, we move on. And what they're saying is, We've got to stop making decisions in classrooms based on the responses of one or two students. Who are the students who put their hands up? I put my hand up. I was a competent student, okay? That's good for me. That's worked well for me through my whole education career, putting my hand up, asking questions, and maybe not always getting it right, but interacting with the teacher and learning and being an active participant, whereas other students sit in the corner and say very little. So how are we getting to them? And just because they're saying very little... It may not mean that they don't understand. Sometimes those students may be the best students, but we're just missing it. So we've got to think about what can we do. So then I think I got involved. 
I've heard Dylan Williams speak a few times. He actually came out to Melbourne and did a big workshop for, for teachers. And I heard him speak on podcasts and videos and stuff like that, but actually getting to hear him speak. And he, he does a quote from David Asabel, which is the single most important factor in influencing learning is what the child already knows. Ascertain this and teach them accordingly. And I think, you know, this is what we need to do. You know, we teach a unit of work, we do pre-testing, we do post-testing. And then at the end, teachers go, oh, but, you know, Johnny doesn't know it. There's probably a lot of research that says units of work and pre and post-testing isn't the best way. But regardless of that, regardless of the method you're using, we need to do formative assessment. We need to keep checking for understanding. So part of that, I came across Rosentrine's Principles. So I got on to, there's a little book. I recommend teachers, this is, to me, this is, this is your purchase of 2023. You've just got your tax back. You've got a bit of money. This is the book that you're buying. This is by Tom Sherrington. So Tom Sherrington, he's, he's on Twitter. So I guess X, we call it now. He has his own blog. He's, he's called Teacher Head on Twitter. He's, so it's, it's one of these little A5 little booklets. It's only about 80 pages long. And it talks about rows and trines of principles as instruction. And there's like 10 principles, things like asking questions, assessment, providing models to the students. It's really sort of a good teacher sort of goes, oh, don't, don't all teachers do this? If all teachers do this, we wouldn't have some of these problems. And I think sometimes as a teacher, you need to be reminded because you're focusing on one thing and you forget the others. And one of the things in this, it says, is checking for understanding. This idea about how are we checking to see if all the kids are still with us? Sun Hill Singh, he does this. He has a he has a quote that I like. He says, "It's like you're in the car every now and again. You're going to check in the rearview mirror to make sure the kid's still with us." And I think sometimes, as a, as a parent, you know, sometimes you think, "What's going on the back seat?" Right? You you know, you're busy driving and you're not paying attention. And I think sometimes in the classroom, you're, you're the same. You're busy. You've planned this lesson. You've been to planning. You might have planned it by yourself with your team, and you're moving along with the learning. Have you stopped? You've got to check. And Dylan Williams suggests we check about every 20 minutes. We need to be checking what's going on, right? So rather than having, you know, kids put their hand up, one of the things we can do is no hands up. There's no hands. There's only hands up if you're asking a question. So what you're doing is you're going to get all the kids to answer. So you might be doing a strategy like, and I know when mentioned in previous podcasts, you know, doing number talks. So you pop the problem up on the board and everyone's got their own little whiteboards. And everyone's having their own little go. And then they put their answer under their chin. So then you can scan, scan and see which kids are getting it and which kids maybe not. You might do a few of those. You might invite a student to the front, explain their strategy, something like that. You as a teacher might rebatch the strategy. So they might say, oh, I took the numbers apart. And you might say, oh, in mathematics, we call that the petitioning strategy. So you might give it a bit more flavor. But really, you're getting the kids to explain it. And then during the lesson, there's little things you can be doing I'm asking questions. I think sometimes teachers think, why do we ask questions anyway? The two main reasons to ask questions is to collect evidence or to allow students to think. Then that's why we should be asking questions. And then how are we going to make sure we're not just choosing the confident learners? Everyone's getting an opportunity to, you know, write something on their whiteboard. Even if you want to do something like a common strategy is think, pair, share. Don't just go to think. Giving the kids the time, write something down on your whiteboard. Then join up with a partner, talk to both students in a talk, and then as a teacher, you, you can ask them. The other thing I often do when I do that is I don't tell who I'm going to ask. So if you and I are partners, Leanne, I'll, I'll come up and go, oh, Leanne, tell me what Cass's strategy was. 
So if you two haven't been talking, you two might have to have another conversation. Oh, you can see that Cass has written some ideas down on her whiteboard. Maybe have a little bit of a discussion and I'll come back. But then you can't always do it like that because then kids know that that's your, that's your game. So then you've got to change it up. But you've got to think about how are we going to elicit the information from the students to move the learning forward? There's a lot about feedback, effective feedback. We talk about that. If you, Victoria, it's one of the, the hit strategies, you know, coming out of the work of John Hattie, high impact teaching strategies, effective feedback is one of the hit strategies. In New South Wales, we use the quality teaching program, which it's a similar, based on different research, but similar, a similar sort of approach. So what are these high impact strategies? And one of them is effective feedback. But what's effective feedback? Feedback, remember, is not just for me telling the student what they need to work on. If I ask the class a question and nobody knows the answer, that's feedback to me. I might have done the best lesson. And I guess yourself as an ex-high school teacher, you probably experienced this more than I had. As a primary school teacher, you just teach one class. That's my grade. I do my one lesson. I go home. Now, as a university tutor, I've got to teach the same class six times. And I can tell you my Tuesday morning class is very different from my Thursday afternoon class. And it's the same, it's the same content. I actually feel sorry for the Tuesday morning eight o'clock group because I think this, they get the first go at it. But by the time I've done it on Thursday, I've, this is the sixth go at it. I've changed it. I've made modifications. Students have asked me questions during the week. Can you clarify this? And I go, oh, so I've made it. So I've made it better. So every time you, you teach something as a teacher, you get better at it. You, you didn't expect that question. And if you're using the ask and listen model, you're getting questions that maybe you didn't think that you would get. So then you've got to say to the students, okay, you know, I'm not sure about that. We're going to come back to it. We're going to keep going on with the lesson and then we're going to come back to that. And just telling the students okay to have this, Peter Sullivan talks about it as the zone of confusion. It's okay to be in the zone of confusion. Sometimes they call it the learning pit or whatever. But it's okay to be in this zone of confusion because we're going to, you know, we're going to work it out. We're going to ask questions. So that's the idea. The idea is we're not going to put our hands up. The teacher's going to choose people. Sometimes it's called cold calling, but you can't just start using cold calling with your grade because I don't know about yourself, but I don't want to be called out. Like Some students like it. If you've got more of an outgoing personality, maybe you don't mind being called out, but other students don't like being called out. So you've got to explain to the rather than just, you know, the old system was, you know, you used to have paddle pop sticks with students' names in a jar. You just pull out a, a name and go, right, this is the student who's sharing now. But that can be confronting. So another way you can do it, Tom Sheridan called it the pre-call, right? The pre-call is this idea that you tell the students, you say to the students in your class, okay, Nadia, Helen, we're going to watch this video. And after the video is finished, I'm going to come to both of you and ask you what you thought of the video. So you've told them. So they've got a little bit of extra time to prepare. So it's called a pre-call. They often do it if you've ever been to like a town hall meeting, you know, and they'll say, all right, who are we going to hear from? All right, Leanne, you're next on the mic. And they will tell the people who's coming next in the town hall meeting. And I thought, you know what? Great little idea. And once you start doing it in the classroom, and you'll find the students, they'll go, right, the student that nominated, they feel a bit chuffed. They've, they've watched the video. They've listened extra carefully. And sometimes the second student, it's, all, it's okay to say, you know what? I agree with what the first student said. And then you go, does anyone else want to add something? Dylan Willing gives the analogy that poor questioning is like table tennis. 
So table tennis is I hit the student the ball, they hit it back to me. So I ask a question, initiate, response, evaluate. I ask a question, they give a response, I evaluate. I go to the next student. So initiate, response, evaluate, and it's just like a table tennis. Whereas he's saying a better lesson plan is this idea about a game of basketball. So I'm going to ask a question, right? So I imagine I'm throwing a ball to a student. I'm asking that student a question. Then that student's going to, another student's going to make some, you know, some additions. And then I'm going to ask another student what they thought about the first student's response. I'm going to ask another, so I'm, so I'm passing the ball, like in a basketball game, we're passing the ball around the court. Everyone's getting an opportunity to like add their bits in, make some statements. And everyone knows they don't, you don't know what's happening in the game. Things can happen. So not just like table tennis, the ball's moving around the court. I really like that, that analogy, really getting the discussion happening in your classroom. Okay. You mentioned in your blurb the eternal problem of students' recall of mathematical facts, as did Michaela Epstein in our last podcast. Can you share what you consider the best formative assessment strategies that would enhance the student's ability to recall these mathematical concepts and facts? And are there any specific techniques or tools that may have shown some promising results? I think it's, it's almost how you, you frame the question. So they often talk about open and closed questions. Mm -hmm. So a closed question, you know, seven, eight, 56, you know, that's a closed question. And there's this sort of this belief that closed questions are bad, open questions are good. Okay, but we need students to be able to recall these facts. So rather than thinking about open and closed questions, Dillon describes it as reproductive versus productive thinking. So imagine I show a picture to my class, right? And it's a square, but I rotated the square like 45 degrees. So rather than the base being flat, which is the traditional way, I rotated this square and I put it up into my classroom and I can ask the students, what shape is this? Now that's a closed question. Okay, now we know what students will say. It's a diamond. Right? We know we're going to get a lot of that. So rather than asking that question, I can say, tell me what you know about this shape. So it's the same. I've, I've made one slideshow. I've put the same amount of work in, but I've just asked a different question. So now tell me what you know about this. So now the kids are writing on their whiteboard. To me, if you're not using whiteboards in your classroom, you need to go out and get some tomorrow. Students really like having a go, putting it under their chin, having a go. That's the same um, in secondary. Not just for primary school kids. Not just, no, definitely not just for primary, primary, secondary. And you can just scan the room. Like if it's a simple question, everyone's got the answer. I've even seen it for formative assessment. So it just had true, false. So I put the problem up on the board and the students just held the sheet up. True, false. Uh -huh. So I already had that, the sheet in there. Okay. So A, B, C, D. So they just rotate it and Sally, they're just holding up A, B, C, D. Mm -hmm. Similar idea that we used to use the blip and, and just sort of scanning the room. Now, Craig Barn, he has a website called Diagnostic Questions where he has a lot of these questions where what he does is the misconceptions are there. So like, for example, my, my example where I've got this, this square that I've rotated, of course, one of the answers would be diamond because a lot of students think that. So then I know that answer A is the misconception answer. So when I'm looking around, I'm seeing all these A's, straight away I've got feedback. Feedback to me as a teacher that I need to work on this. Students in my class have a misconception about the orientation of a shape. Or maybe they've got just a, a misconception about the, the language to do with the shape. Like maybe they don't know the name of the shape. So it's sort of straight away information. I guess in relation to like 
working with number facts. You've got to find different ways to get the collect information for the students. So yes, you can have questions. You can do little things with the whiteboards. You can get them to put their hands up. I'm a really big fan of using exit tickets at the end of the lesson. So exit tickets do something very quick. I often have my students working in groups during the lesson so they can share their ideas. There's a lot of research to do with peer tutoring and how that's beneficial. So then at the end of the lesson, everyone does the same task. So then I can really see these kids have gone and these kids haven't. And then I can address that the next day. So I haven't got time to reteach to everybody. So little targeted groups. And Di Seaman talks about this, this idea of having just a little target group for about 15 minutes, getting them, helping them with the misconception and then sending them back to the group. A few years ago, it was all about writing the learning intention on the board. We are learning to today. If you can get the students to write the wall, but later in the lesson, all right, everyone, what's the learning intention today? Everyone write it down. Now, if you're getting students and they're writing something totally else, today we're learning about, they're writing about, you know, today we're learning about multi-link blocks and they're focused on the blocks. And I'm here, I am thinking we're doing this great lesson on perspectives, but my lesson's missing them up. So having the students write down that, like getting the students to summarize the learning, just like we do in literacy. We do it really well in literacy. We do it really poorly in mathematics. So I think there's still this move that the teacher is seen as the main source of the knowledge where we're saying, no, 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 no. There's, there's 25 of us in here. We're all learners. I'm a learner. All the students are learners. And I'm going to ask and listen. I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to wait and listen for responses. You know, they say the average wait time is less than a second or something. If we can increase that to three to five seconds, it's shown to increase students' ability to respond. It's, it's something simple. I, I always laugh when my students head up lesson plans and I think this is enough for three lessons. It's not about lesson plan, but it's enough for three lessons. And you don't have to, I think we do it much better in science. Like we would have in science, we use that sort of model where we will experiment over several, several lessons. We don't just have to finish it all off in one lesson. But in mathematics, we seem to try to fit all the learning into that one lesson and it's close. Whereas in, in English, you know, you'd be, you know, you'd be doing a draft, a redraft, a plan, a draft, a redraft over several lessons. And I think that's something that we really need to do in mathematics. I like the idea of not giving all the answers. A cliffhanger. There's no reason why we can't stop a lesson, what people might think is halfway through and going, are there any other ways we can do it? There's this famous problem, order of operations. It was very popular download on the AMC website, the four paws problem, where you have the four paws and then you have to use operations to make all the answers from one to a hundred. And after you work on the problem for a while, you soon work out that there's some answers that you can't get. So do, do we need to use brackets? Do we need to introduce other operations like factorial or square root of four or something like that? And just putting that idea out there and just going, okay, we don't have all the answers today. Let's just put that up there. Come back. We'll come back to it in a few days. I've done that with students and I've come back a few days later and students have just been working on it just for fun. And I found another answer. Miss Larry, Miss Larry, found another answer. So getting that, this idea, that, that's a good teaching practice. Yes. That's something that I'm going to be talking about at the MAB conference, just giving oh, a plug wow. for my session. I'm going to be talking about out-of-field maths teachers and what we can learn from great teachers and how we can actually make 
great maths teachers out of great teachers because good teaching is generally good maths teaching. Yeah, good teaching is good teaching. And and bringing you back to the students, but I think we're in such a hurry. And I am, you know, I've been described as an energizer bunny. I get it. I know. This is me. If I'm saying we need to slow it down, need to slow it down. We need to ask. We need to listen. We need to wait. And we need to give students time. And like two of my big questions that I say to my students is, tell me more about that. And tell me more about that's a great question because it works whether the student was totally right or totally wrong. Once the student starts talking about their problem, the strategy that they're using, if they have made a mistake, sometimes they pick it up, all right? That's called the hypercorrection effect. So, so if you recognize the mistake, oh, seven and three is 11. And I go, seven and three is 11. I don't know, seven and three is 10. Oh, I made a mistake there. And so if the student can realize that's the best learning. So if there is a bit of this speedy number facts, oh, teachers don't like it. At my last school, my students loved it. They really enjoyed it because they understood the purpose of it. We had talked about the importance of learning your addition facts, learning your multiplication facts. And we'd set up a system where they monitored their own facts. So there was no league table in my classroom where, oh, Cassandra's at the top and, you know, someone else is second. We didn't have that. Or the slow one, the slow ones eliminated. So they're not getting any practice. None of that, none of that, none of that buzz garbage where we're throwing kids out for the wrong answer. But what we are doing is the students would monitor their own work. And when they hand it in, I just write, I just write that there was five role. I didn't tell them which five, right? So then they had to go back, right? And then they had to check with a partner and I've got five, which, which one's you? And like just checking over. Like, so it's just a slightly different thing rather than just tick, cross, tick, cross, tick, cross. There's five wrong here. And the students go, oh. So then you would go back, well, you know, you'd go, you go, look. That's the classic amazing race challenge, you know, where they get it wrong and then they have to go back and find out what they did wrong. I find that so frustrating. Yeah, it is. You've also got to have this system. I think you've got to work out with your class. The king can come back and go, I don't know, right? So fair enough, right? So you've got to have, you've got to have some systems in place. I like the idea, you know, who wants to be a millionaire? What can we do if we don't know? We can ask a friend, okay? You can ask a friend, nominate another student. They can help you. You can ask the audience. So let's ask the class. What does the class think? Or you know what? You can pass. You can choose to pass, just like in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I'm going to pass on this one. I don't know, right? And I'm going to come back to it. But setting up that with your class, I think students are much more aware now. I think we know enough about, particularly older students, we've been two years in remote learning. We we require students to take on more responsibility. Let's not pull it from them. Let's say, you know what? Students can take on more responsibility. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to say these two things are wrong, but there's one more error you need to find it. And it's in this section, you know, giving them sort of some advice, but not doing all the work for them. There's research to say that if you provide feedback with a score, students only look at their score. Whereas if you just provide the feedback, yeah, they're more likely to actually take on board some of the suggestions. Yeah, so we talk about the IEG model. So providing information to the student, just general information. Like, I really like how you attempted all the questions. Yeah. And evaluative comment. So, you know, question, uh, question three was about shape and you've misidentified the trapezium 
as a rectangle. Okay. And then a guided. So next week we're going to be working on two defects in the classroom and we're going to be looking at the different properties. Hopefully that'll help you recognize the names of the different quadrilaterals. So sort of giving them that guidance. So they're, it's like this, what worked well, even better if. So here's this, what you did well, here's what you need to work on and sort of setting that up with the student. Um, another one we often use is um, agree or disagree. So when a student, I have in my last school, I happened to have a student who was very confident, always seemed to know the answer. If you asked the class, oh, who's a good mathematician? They all would have said this student. Oh, he's amazing. But he was that confident that he would, sometimes he would make a mistake. Students would just accept his answer because he must know. We got this idea from Tom Sherrington's blog, agree or disagree. So agree or disagree is and something we would do in literacy. We often did debates, but in maths, Okay, agree or disagree. So you had to say whether you agreed or whether you disagreed with the student's answer, but then you had to justify why. That's the whole working mathematically. That's what working mathematically is in the curriculum, being able to explain our thinking. And it's difficult for teachers, unfortunately, because it's not how we were taught when we were at school. It's very different. Well, look, Cass, we've been going for a long time now, so I reckon we need to wind it up. Is there anything else that you really wanted to say? I guess the last question that I use is that if you don't know, what would you try? That's the question that kids say, I don't know. Then you say, well, if you did know, what would you try? Now, a lot of people tell me that that wouldn't work. I got that from Glenn Pearsall. Just before I moved to Melbourne, I actually got to meet Glenn Pearsall. And uh, I said to Glenn, you know, I've been using, when you first said that, I thought it was a bunch of rubbish and it would never work. But if you did know, what would you try? It works remarkably well. The amount of students go, oh, well, if I did know, what I would try was this. And then they start talking and you go, right, you go and try that and I'll come back and check in on a few minutes. And so they're off on their way. I found that very effective. Again, I didn't think it would work, but. No, it's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But I think that coupled with the idea of giving the kids who wants to be a millionaire strategies. You know, then then they have that option of going, you know, I'm not sure. But then you've got to work with that child to give them enabling prompts so then they can have that more confidence. There's a whole intervention program in math. It's called the GRIN program, which is getting ready in numeracy, which is basically this idea that before the lesson, you would give that student some strategies. Yeah. So when you came to the lesson, they'd already have a strategy. That's been shown to be really effective. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So that's the same similar thing. You can do that with your group. If you know that these students, oh, when we're moving on to double digit addition, they might not have a strategy. You could pull that group out the day before. Do it. You don't have to tell the rest of the class. Pull that group out. Do five minutes. This is a strategy. It's called the petition strategy. You might want to try it. Okay, next day, here's, a, here's the number talk. Does anyone have a strategy? Oh, tell me, what's your strategy? Knowing that you told them the strategy the day before. We used the, the philosophy when I was tutoring. So I would take students out the day before, teach them what was coming, and then the confidence that they showed when they were yeah. in the classroom. And, and I think that's the thing, though, in mathematics. It's not that kids hate maths. It's that kids hate not knowing. That's the thing. And I think it's linked with this idea, oh, I hate not knowing, so I hate maths. No, 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 no. Generally speaking, they love maths. Like we, you and I, we've done, we've done some amazing maths events where we've seen students do these fantastic 
lessons and videos and activities and questions and Olympiads and you think, wow, like kids are amazing. They don't hate maths. They hate not knowing. And I think that's what we have to give them. We have to give them the tools and say, you know what, it's okay not to know. And I think my current experience being a PhD student, there's a lot I don't know. Oh, Cass, it doesn't feel like it. When I talk to you and you talk about, you know, just off the top of your head, you're talking about, you know, academics and people's research and you're able to, to name names. I just find that amazing. And I think we are really lucky to have someone like you who can communicate this. And so now I've written the list of all the people that you've mentioned. So our listeners can then go and read their work or listen to their podcast. And you have highlighted, this is the good stuff. So it saves us doing our master's or PhD. Hopefully people get inspired though and do go back to uni and yeah, well, life on learning. Thank you so much for being with us, Cass. Once again, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to someone who is so passionate about what they do. No worries, Leanne. I'm looking forward to it. And people can still get get to the MAP conference. So, yeah, if you're interested, definitely look into uh, attending. Absolutely. We'll put a link to the registration page for the Maths Association of Victoria conference. It's always well worth attending, if not just to see Cass and I. But I'm really looking forward to see um, Robert Kerplinski. Oh, definitely. Fantastic. Open middle. And all the work that he's done, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely looking forward to to meeting him face to face. I've only ever met him via Zoom, so yes. So if people want to contact you for any reason, Cass, what's the best way to contact you? Oh, well, I mean, I'm still on Twitter, but I'm not sure everyone else is anymore. So that's probably the best way to get in contact with me. And also LinkedIn, we'll put there, we could put that link on there so we can, people can get in contact with me. Always happy to talk all things maths. Yeah, and happy to happy to share the slides from my from my presentation once it's finished. Oh, that would be but... fantastic. Yeah, we can link those once you've done your presentation. That would be really good. So if you can't make the conference, we'll uh, yeah, we can send a link out to the presentation so people can be just yeah reading the background information. And I do recommend getting that book, Rose and Shines. It's only a little book, but it's well worth the read. Yeah, and then checking out Tom Sheridan's blog. Lots of great little videos and how-to guides. And you can you too can go down the path of cheating for understanding. Once again, thanks so much, Cass, for joining us. No worries. If you'd like more information about what Cass has spoken about, please go to our show notes. Or if you can't find it there, contact us on mathstalk at amsi.org.au. Please take the time to rate us because that really helps our algorithm. And I'll see you all at MAV. Bye.